Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This week I speak with the artist Julian Opie. Opie is best known for distilling imagery from everyday life into paired-back symbols, be it of people, animals, or buildings, depicting experience as it's remembered and recreated. His work somehow combines the frankness of wayfinding signage with the enigma of hieroglyphics and Japanese woodblock prints, with all the details stripped away and just the essence remaining. Opie himself thinks of his work as a kind of model of perception and experience. And this becomes especially clear when you consider the ever faster speed of contemporary life, dissolving the details of the world around us and rendering it instead in an elemental state. Airports and cars figured prominently in Opie's earlier work, not necessarily as representations, but as imagined environments from which we look at and make sense of the world. And in a way, it's only natural then that he's moved towards VR and social media as yet another of these imagined environments. You can see his VR work in an exhibition that's on now at the Listen Gallery in London, which is on display until the 15th of April. I met Opie in early March of 2023 at his studio near Old Street. It was a week after the exhibition had opened, and while we touch on it, we focus more broadly on Opie's work as a whole, its relationships with architecture, and the singular visual language he's created. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it even though the show's up and it's just down the road, I think I feel sort of quite happily detached. I feel like I've caught you at precisely the wrong time. <laughs> or maybe no, um, the perfect any, time. Any time is fine. I'm not exhausted <laughs> anymore. That was... The, so that's good. Um, yeah, I think there is a sense of when you're doing the show and sometimes there's a press opening or you're talking to people in the gallery space that you've got a very immediate connection and you, I mean, I'm firing a lot of thoughts and, and worries and anxieties about the show. But as I say, at the moment, there's, there's a sort of slight stepping away from it and um, thinking about other things. But actually, I find myself discussing fairly similar things with maybe different examples. But it seems to often come back to the, I mean, obviously it comes back to the same kind of issues that I'm delving into every time I make a work. What would you say those issues are? Well, that's a kind of lifetime's work (laughs) question, but um, there seems to be a recurring attempt to create a, a spatial experience, trying to create, um, spatial awareness and human awareness. So, you know, your hands, the space that you're in, the way that you navigate it, the way that you read it, these seem to be the kind of issues that I keep returning to as to you know, how to describe what it feels like to be alive, I suppose, how to make something that's through the act of looking at it, of comprehending it, of experiencing it, at least for me, and I therefore you know, extend the idea that maybe it's for other people too, you become involved in that experience of being aware of looking. And by extension, if you're aware of looking, you're aware of experiencing, and by extension, you're aware of existing. And so the, the, the subject matter that I might use for that changes over the years, the materials, the methods, um, the scale, all of these things are available to be played with. And I can bring in material from the outside world that strikes me as usable, relevant, you know, if I see some stainless steel hand railing, I, I put that aside and think that's something that I could use and I, and I have used it in the Listen show and I'll continue to use it. Um, so just um, to construct an image in listeners' minds about uh, the particular sculptures you were referring to just then, there are a series in the exhibition at the Listen of figures in repose in a courtyard there, mm-hmm. made of shiny tubular metal. 
stainless steel. Stainless steel. It, it looks kind of like the kind of metal that you'd associate with handrails, as you say. And I've heard you describe elsewhere the relationship that these figures hold, at least in your mind, to certain prehistoric sculptures? Yeah, not prehistoric, but um, culturally distant, probably to us. Uh, there's some over there, actually. Um, these, okay. these are uh, carved wooden figures from the Jorai tribe in the highlands of Vietnam. They're not historic. They're made of wood. They would only last for a certain amount of time. They have a feeling of uh, historic uh, imagery and, and culture. Um, and yet you know, the Jorai tribe is existing and um, is current. So there's a discussion there about what one means by uh, historic um, works. But anyway, these, these are posts, they're the heads of posts and they would be in a jungle um, environment surrounding a, a tomb. And so they would make up a fence. Um, so these, these fences have posts on the corners and, and in between that have these guardian ancestral figures that are effectively carved out of a single uh, log of wood. So the, the figure has to be crouched to be held within that form of a, a, a single tube. And in order to do that, they've got their elbows bent, their knees bent, um, their hands on their faces. They're very kind of crouched, powerful figures. And when I came across these, it, it both uh, echoed my desire to move away from the flat cutout images of people that I'd been using as sculptures. Um, and it also gave me the idea of how to do that. So I find with other people's art, that's often a kind of dual role that I, I, I see things and look at things because they echo my interest. Over here we've got some Greek Tanagra statuettes from about 300 BC um, that are very small, but they look like Greek sculptures. They are Greek sculptures. They look like large marble Greek sculptures, but they're very small. They would have been offered as gifts in temples. And at the time that I came across them, I was also looking at ways of making small sculptures. And by looking at them, I understood what what it is that I want from that, what it is that happens when you scale someone right down to kind of tabletop size. Um, so to go back to the, the Jorai tribe's um, bent figures, it occurred to me that all the statues I'd been making were flat. Uh, they were really drawings that were taken out of the two-dimensional plane. And by thickening them or making them out of strong materials, I could make them stand up as if they were statues which they are statues, I guess, but they're also flat drawings. And there's a couple here in front of us where I've simply extruded a flat drawing to the point where it can stand up on its own. Um, the end result was a sort of mix of these, these tribal figures and looking at bicycle stands on the street, you know, where you, you lock up your bike and there's these hoops of stainless steel on the street. And they're kind of strange, you know, they're very, if, once you start to look at them, and I've been photographing them around town, they're actually pretty weird, you know, these kind of sudden exuberant loops of bright shiny metal sticking up out of the pavement on, on Upper Street or Kingston Road. Um, so I, I mix these languages together. That's sort of how the works tend to stumble forwards of like looking for things, finding things, putting them together and ending up with these, all of which came to fruition because during COVID, I was surreptitiously photographing people hanging around in the park. So I didn't know what I was going to do with these photographs. I just thought that the way people lounged in, on Hampstead Heath or um, London Fields in little groups was very evocative and very human. Very, those, it's like when you see people lounging or reading, looking at their phone on the floor, you can almost project your own body into those poses. They feel very um, knowable. So that I think when I present these sculptures, although they're, they're pretty pared down, there's not a lot of information there, because you're so personally, bodily familiar with those positions, you can perhaps relate to them, feel them, not just visually. What you've just done in this um, description you've given me is you've volleyed from the pre-modern to the contemporary looking at, first of all, these sculptures and then providing a kind of 
meditation on the bike rack. <laughs> and then in this instance of you observing crowds lounging uh, on a field, you're doing both at the same time by observing a kind of timelessness in the postures of people and the gestures of people. And I want to just slow down for a moment and unpack what just happened. <laughs> because I feel like, in a nutshell, what you've given me is emblematic of your way of thinking and your way of making work. What you're doing there is you're being an artist <laughs> searching for uh, new ways of articulating the contemporary. And yet, somehow, paradoxically, the way you try and do that is by looking quite far back. I mean, just to, to kind of build on that briefly, in a recent interview you gave, you explained that you don't read the news, which I'm highly suspicious of. You don't, you don't read the paper. What you're reading right now are books on pre-modern society and culture and art. And I mean, I don't see any here. I see mosaic tiles, but you've described, um, again, in other conversations and interviews you've given, the kind of artifacts you tend to collect or gravitate towards um, include these kind of Paleolithic hand tools. Yeah, they're not here at the moment. <laughs> so maybe tell me about how, for you, this process of looking backwards still allows you to situate yourself in some kind of contemporary moment. And do you really not read the news? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't read the news. I think the news frightens me. And I find it uninspiring because it's frightening. Fear is not a very uh, productive feeling for me. It leads more to confusion and not sure that I feel able to play with it. Maybe, I don't know, I think of something like James Rosenkist who said that he likes to work with old-fashioned adverts, not, not ones that you'd be surprised to see or anything new. They, it needs to have settled for him to be able to, to play with it. And I think I, perhaps without meaning to or planning it, have a similar approach. I do, I mean, there's, there's talk about what I look at, but there's also, I mean, I do collect as well, I mean, I look at lots of things, obviously everyone does, but I also collect quite a lot of art um, because I like to look at it in depth over a period of time um, and have it around me. Um, and I do collect quite a lot of contemporary art too, so it's, it's not a question entirely of it needs to be in the past. It, it, it doesn't need to be anything. It just needs to, I, I hate the phrase, but speak to me. It needs to jump out and feel like something that I'm excited about and really need and want to get um, and, and investigate and look at. Um, I mean, we only know the past. It, it's when you arrived, it's already the past. So um, there is, the, um, what, what is the difference between the past and the contemporary? Really, it's just a time scale activity, but the, the current news, um, you know, I, I, I'm not taking up a position here. No. I, I'm not suggesting anybody else might ought to or might feel the same, but my interests lead me elsewhere. Um, often I'm reading about the past and, and looking at things from the past and collecting things from the past simply because that's where I find those things. And, I, and I'm not saying it has to be, you know, Japanese prints. We've got some Japanese prints here. They're from the uh, 19th and sometimes 18th century. That's actually not that long ago. I mean, you, could, you can't talk to anybody from that time, but we're not far off that. That's very different from talking about you know, uh, Greek culture or the um, stone tools from the Stone Age that we were talking about. You know, these are immense swathes of time to be, to be picking out and saying it's all the past. I don't think that that's reasonable to say it's, it's all the past. These are like highly different eras and, and very different attitudes towards life and, and very specifically towards art. You know, 
there's, a, there's some discussion as whether people made hand, stone hand tools in any sense as an artistic undertaking. It's a, it's a discussion. You know, there are places they find far too many of them for them to have been of use. So why were these early humans sitting there making quite laborious and hard to make tools if it, they didn't need them all? Was it a kind of artistic process that they wanted more or they would show them to people or just to want to make a really perfect one? And, and when they were making them, were they entirely utilitarian? Or you, know, you look at some of them, they're so beautiful. You have to feel like there was a, a desire to make something beyond simply the fact that it was scraping hides. But, but these are unknowable. I'm not sure that I'm really no, answering no, you your are, question you are, no. terribly well. But. I mean, my experience of listening to you speak in conversation um, with other people is that every question uncorks a new bottle. It does tend to be that way, yeah. And, and I'm often having to ask people to, for, on my behalf, to cut the conversation short. Because, you know, there are no definite things to answer. It's all a process. And, uh, and if you catch me on another occasion, I'll be thinking about some different things. And if you ask me a question, I can see a number of ways of trying to approach answering it. Um, there is no simple answer to that, to any of those questions. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a real, it's a very appealing puzzle. This question of how one conveys what it means to be alive. <laughs> but also this particular method of actually a very, in a way, studied disinterest in a certain kind of contemporary life, which maybe is more a disinterest in the contemporary 24-hour news cycle. Um, and instead, a real invested, but still kind of amateurish fascination with um, history, with um, pre-modern history, with ancient history. I mean, there are also, are these Neanderthal skulls? These are three-dimensional, 3D printed versions of very rare skulls that have been found, you know, over, over the last couple of centuries okay. by anthropologists. Um, you can buy them online for universities and that kind of thing. So yes, on the top shelf, those are Neanderthals, which are the closest to us. Okay. And as you go down the shelves, you're, you're going back in time to about five million years there. And the reason why I find this so puzzling and so intriguing is that your work to me is achingly contemporary and seems to always strive to be so. I mean, ever since I first encountered it, which frankly, probably is the same way a lot of people of my generation first encountered it, which was through a specific album cover. <laughs> I mean, listeners will recognize the uh, album cover for Blur's Greatest Hits. This was in 2000, I think. Yeah. There are these very stripped-down ideograms of people, uh, people composed um, of the most minimal collection of lines and colors possible to convey the gist or the, um, the shorthand or the summary of a person. Um, and, I mean, a lot of critics, a lot of writers, a lot of curators have looked at your work and tried to understand it through a certain contemporary feeling, which has to do with alienation and detachment, uh, a certain sense of speed at which one is, or which we are now engaging with and in reading the world. And of course, the higher the velocity, the more reduced the detail becomes the more summarized the information is. And this all makes sense to me as I read about it and as I look again at your work. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the environments you're looking at, whether you know, in the 90s and 2000s, it was the inside of the automobile, or in the case of the exhibition that just opened now at the Listen Gallery, the environment one experiences inside the VR headset. There's a striving to explore the spaces we find ourselves in as people alive today. And so I find it strange and intriguing that for you, the artifacts that are somehow most charged or most inspiring or most appealing 
other ones from a much earlier period of time? Well, I think when you say much earlier or most or that suggests that I'm specifically looking in certain areas and I'm not. Um, I spend quite a lot of time photographing public lavatories when, I, when there's no one in there and I can get away with it. And it's not because those are contemporary or because they're ancient. I, I also went to Egypt recently and had a similar feeling photographing some of the tombs there, these kind of private passageway-like spaces that you want to both hide in, but at the same time it's quite gives one a sense of wanting to escape through and, and out of it. The, 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 I mean, I'm making this up as I go along, but, but I see a kind of similarity with those two sets of photographs and the fact that one is 4,000 years ago isn't my problem really. This sense of looking into the past is really just, a, just looking. Mm. I think you can chop off the into the past mm -hmm. um, section because it's just looking at, at any world that I come across. And if I was to come across something of the 24-hour news cycle that you mentioned, that could very easily be part of it if it was relevant to my particular interest. I'm not ruling it out or cutting it. I don't tend to find that as being a very uh, engaging source, mm. the newspapers. Mm. Um, and of course, yeah, you're looking very closely at the present and in the work you do around pedestrian movement. I mean, you very closely documented just down the street, I think, uh, Old Street Roundabout, you set up a camera and were capturing people's movements at different times of year, which you then translated into the kind of illustrations or um, animations, rather, that you're best known for, which are really animations of these reduced figures, these line-drawn figures, walking. <laughs> Yeah, and I think by combining these figures, which are all drawn and dealt with individually, I can kind of create a, a sort of freeze situation which, um, which feels normal and um, very tangible and evocative. It's something that we're surrounded by constantly. And that sense of normality to the point where you could shut your eyes and see it is, I think, very key to, to that kind of connectivity that I'm looking for when, when people look at the work. There's this essay that came to mind when I was looking at your work by the French poet Charles Baudelaire called The Painter of Modern Life. And then kind of annoyingly, looking through your website, I found that someone had already written an essay borrowing that title and making that connection. But that's just to say it's palpable. So the person who wrote the essay is the curator and poet Juan Manuel Bonnet. And I mean, for listeners who aren't familiar with this essay, it's, it's, it's by Baudelaire. He's talking about an artist friend of his, but he's speaking more generally about the role of the artist as a kind of hunter, capturing these fugitive or transitory moments in contemporary culture, whether it's the glint of light off a building or a chance encounter on a crowded street or the movements and gestures of people in a public space. And when I reread that, I realized, of course, this is precisely what you're doing as well. You are indeed a painter of modern life, but it's a different kind of modernity than the one we tend to think of when we talk about contemporary culture. It's a modernity that's embedded in the way I'm sitting right now. It's in my bones, in a way. I mean, what, do, you, do you see it similarly? How do you respond to that? Um, it's, a, it's a very nice way of, of putting things, and I, I appreciate that. Um, I do often find that people, uh, you've, you've quoted a number of things from a number of places of people looking at the work that, that I've done and sometimes I feel akin to what people point out or s express and sometimes I think no you, what you're reading in there I think I don't feel uh, close to uh, and I, I feel like 
When I use the materials and the subject matter, for instance, of garage forecourts from motorways, service stations, a lot of the response I get back from people who are looking at that, or at least the people who actually have responses or write their responses, is a discussion on alienation, the modern world, uh, in a, quite a negative sense. Of, people bring up Ballard a lot, J.G. Ballard. Yeah, a sort of nihilistic. And I don't get that. I, that's not the feeling that I get when I'm in a motorway service station. I, there is a, there's an element of... Not repulsion. There's an element of uh, an untouchable quality, which is... There's a sort of silence in there, which is uncomfortable, I guess, but it's also quite intriguing. Mm. It, it draws me in, and, and in the same way that perhaps the VR flatness in that world, um, which I think is true of a lot of created worlds, whether it's an airport or um, a VR experience or some uh, Corbusier empty corridor, it, it leaves you with, with a feeling of unease, perhaps in a sense, but also I think of, of, of a certain amount of excitement. I mean, certain sculptors are responding to current events in the kind of statues that they're producing for public spaces now, which have to do with a heightening of awareness of history, of untold histories, of unjust histories, in the aftermath of these huge social and political upheavals, you know, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, in this collective conversation about decolonization. If we're talking about different strands of contemporary life and how the artist engages with it, I wonder from your perspective how that's influenced the way you think about your work, which is in the end about a certain valorization of the human figure in public space. It's statuary. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, there's a lot of confusion there, and I don't claim to have solved or resolved anything in my mind about some of these issues, which I think you know, you're suggesting are in discussion and in the air. I think that there's a there's a point there's a there's a discussion to be had about. Um, the way that you see the world in its right and wrong and how you might want it to be. Very important discussion. And it's not one that I'm really involved in. I don't feel I've got a great deal to, to add on, on that front. But I do feel like maybe having spent a lifetime kind of investigating what it feels like to move from one space to another and how, and how, that, how you navigate that, how, you, how your existence um, is is focused and highlighted by that by that process that's that is a common human at least what one can only presume a common human um part of of existence and and it feels like there's some value at least to me in in focusing on that in highlighting that in engaging and communicating that activity um and i th i think inevitably that kind of discussion is going to touch on on a further sense of how people read the world and how they exist on it, but not in some of the other ways that other people can deal with. And I, you know, one can only, one can only um, investigate what's what's clear to to me, and and that's that's what I go about doing. And um, so when the works are out there in the public realm, the, of course, there's a sense of responsibility when you put work out in the public, no one's been asked whether they want to look at that or not. And you know, I take that fully on board and try to make that relationship feel comfortable. Um, 
but that doesn't mean that I, I need to join in discussions that aren't relevant to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at the work in public space, there's an anonymizing that's going on. There's an abstraction and an anonymity that the figures are afforded. I mean, you give them back a little bit of their identities in the way you title the work occasionally. But in the end, these are anonymous forms. They are stand-ins for everybody in a way, uh, which I find really interesting because, again, it allows you to feel into them and to, in a way, fill in the gaps. <laughs> um, but I think this, part, this point about the, the anonymity of the sculptures or of the images maybe brings us back to this discussion of a certain form of detachment that you seem to be pursuing in the making of your work? I think the anonymity and the detachment are elements of trying to find a, a crossover between worlds. And I think, you know, when you've got a photograph, for me, that crossover doesn't happen in a very natural way. Although I've got a photograph over here by Alex Prager, which is a, an, another one by Gary Gill, and they're photographic artworks that I really love. So I'm, I'm not dissing photography as, as a form of, of art, but just using it as, a, as a, an example of a, a very different approach. That, um, that there's, there's something about finding uh, a language that allows for a, a floating between, between worlds and between... Um, and I suppose just stop there, just finds a language. You know, as soon as you start to talk about a language, then, then it feels a little clearer to me that, you know, pictograms or hieroglyphics or cuneiform requires a certain degree of sameness and recognizability and, theref and therefore perhaps uh, a, a loss or a lack of uh, specific detail in order for it to function as a language. And I think imagery and drawing has, has often, if not always, had this this role of drawing from the world uh, a language that can then be shared and used to describe and talk about existence and, and how things look. So if you think of stick men um, hunting mammoths drawn on the, on the wall of a cave, yes, you could say that these are anonymous figures and that they're not specifically nameable people, but they've got they allow one to enter into that sense of, of the moment and to create this um, something which is similar to the way that I think that our brains function anyway, which is to create a kind of model. Um, that's, that's how we deal with the world, that's how we function within the world, that's how we perceive the world and are therefore our own life and existence is, th is through this modelling um, of the world which is, is actually made up out of all sorts of information and um, input. So there's visual input, but there's an awful lot more. The VR experience that I've got at the gallery at the moment, yes, it's visual, you've got these goggles on, but that's only half the story. The other half is that you're walking in a space and the, 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 the information you're getting through the goggles makes sense in terms of the other information you're getting, although it's actually wrong. You're not walking in the space that I've depicted. You're walking in the Listen Gallery with some low meter 50 walls made of wood and paper, but that's not what you're seeing. So the information is correct to what you're seeing and, and I can therefore use that to build up a world. And I think that's what cave drawings are doing, the same as the VR experience and the same as Misaccio's paintings in a cathedral. And you know, this is what art does, is it, it, it draws the world. It's, if you like, simplifies, although I tend to kind of pull away from when people talk about, oh, you're simplifying the world, or you're paring it down to its basic yeah, in some ways, but actually I see it the other way around. I'm actually adding loads of detail up to the point where I feel like there's enough. You know, that people quite often say, you know, why are there no feet? Because that's not what's necessary in order to create this scene. If I add things that are not necessary, then it will be harder for me to evoke that very tangible, very real sense of being there, of, of feeling the, uh, the existence of that situation. I want to focus a little more on this, this topic of alienation for a bit because personally I find it so appealing. Coming from architectural practice, there's a real allure to the detachment of the designer 
and the reflexivity that the designer experiences when forming spaces for others to use. There's a kind of productive detachment from a situation that's necessary as an architect. You know, you're drawing a plan and you're drawing it from the position of above, whether it's an angel <laughs> or God or some malevolent force, but you're looking down on a hypothetical situation that may come into being, but you're totally removed from it. And I think this sensation is one that perhaps you share. Um, there's a series of uh, artworks that you've made that begin with the word imagine. Imagine that you're driving. Imagine that it's raining. <laughs> Imagine that you're landing. And these are all views um, of real sculptures you've made um, that ask of the viewer to do some uh, work in completing the image in a way. I also like the idea that you know, it's hardly anything that one needs to bother to do is to imagine to drive because at least back then I was and, and most people were driving an awful lot. The last thing they would want to do would be to spend their spare time imagining that they're back there doing that again. So what I was trying to do was to use things which are completely normal like imagine you're sitting in the office to suggest that along that that the that the, the important thing is that you are, are taking yourself away while you're doing something you're imagining you're doing it at the same time so you may be driving but i'd like you to imagine that you're driving so that you you you, you remove your center of uh, vision from being the driver to being watching yourself doing doing that driving and Th this kind of reflexivity, um, I mean, it just in a way tells us uh, how focused you are on the act of perception itself and on questioning experience and questioning reality. I mean, it's a very, it's a very existential interest you seem to have in one's experience of being alive again. Well, it does begin to sound that way, and I think that's partly because when I offer an an exhibition, this is where I think I work best. When I try and talk about it, inevitably we, we are left with, with this shared language of words, which is only one way of experiencing something. And at this point, in it, when I'm giving a lecture, I quite often lunge out from the podium towards the audience with my hands, and they all go back, um, physically um, recoil from the feeling that I'm about to attack them because that's the kind of movement, that's the kind of interaction that art can have. Whereas me talking to you is only, well not only, but it's a very specific form of communication which if I was a writer would be enough, but I'm not. Whereas when you're making sculptures, you can undertake this discussion or any of the many discussions we could have if we stayed here for hours and hours about all sorts of things, including perception and alienation. Mm. But it could be crafted within a way in which the communication was not existential or not existential in the negative sense of existential being like a little bit aloof and distant from experience and, and rather over-specialized. I think that when I make an exhibition, I hope that the sense that people have of walking through it isn't that here is a quite a highfalutin conversation about um, existence taken from a great distance that's quite intellectual. I don't think that is the feeling that people have, I think, it's certainly not the feeling that I have, it, that I'm able to, by drawing on the world as, as a shared experience, um, both in terms of materials and space and subject matter and um, surface, that that, that that conversation can feel like a very uh, present and normal conversation to be having. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't using existential in a pejorative sense. No, I know, but, but that's because you're an intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. It was in an admiring sense. Thank you. A admiring of the fact that it can be um, a prosaic element of the work. And I just want to read back to you something you've said about your reflections on reality now, because I feel like it's helpful in maybe centering this part of the conversation where you're, you're saying that um, we live inside of an enormous novel. It's now less and less necessary for the writer to invent the fictional content of his or her novel. 
The fiction's already there. The writer's task is to invent reality. The most prudent and effective method of dealing with the world around us is to assume that it is a complete fiction. Conversely, the one small note of reality left to us is inside our own heads. I said that? Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> and reading that, of course, language is inadequate, especially when you're talking to a sculptor. But it, it, it unlocked, I think, um, an experience I had in navigating your work at the Lesson Gallery. And maybe it's helpful just to explain the work. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I came into the gallery, you offered me this headset, and off I went into this, is it a nine by five meter square room with low walls and um, a passage at the back. And you put on the headset and you're confronted with sculpture, sculptures that are identifiably yours. And I go around the back through the exit and then come out again and I'm re-entering a different a different set of sculptures. And again and again, this kind of cycling through the room where you exit and re-enter and you're presented with something new, whether it's um, moving sculptures or static images on a wall or large, impossibly large environmental pieces in a mirrored kind of infinite chamber, it seems like. And then at the very end, I think I was in just an empty white wall gallery and the doors were open and I could see you again and Victoria who's an employee at uh, the Listen Gallery in a kind of blurry image and this was a gateway back into the ostensible reality of the of the gallery and there was something incredibly unnerving um, and strangely moving about, for me, that transition back into the real gallery, out of this imagined kind of VR experience. I almost felt like I was an infant in a cot looking up at my parents. <laughs> I felt like I was being reborn. Interesting. Um, and I think also I was fighting the urge before that moment while I was experiencing the VR sculptures to take out my phone and take a picture of what I was seeing. It just made me realize how internal the experience of the work was in that moment, where literally everything I was seeing was inside of my head. And it was an experience I couldn't in any way share with anyone else. And then later on in the exhibition, after I'd taken the headset off, lo and behold, here is a sculpture that I'd seen in VR manifest in real life in the courtyard. So you're playing with... Which, again, you, can, which you can photograph. <laughs> which you can photograph. I, I've come across it myself and, and a lot of people patting their trousers for their phone because that is, that is the contemporary reaction to anything that, that you, you, know, you find in, in any way interesting or extraordinary that you want to share that mm -hmm. and record it. And I think it's interesting by chance in this situation you can't. Mm -hmm. There is no way of photographing what it is that you're seeing, which is quite an unusual... Uh, I mean, there are places where you're not allowed to, and I feel that, you know, I'm going through customs in an airport, you're suddenly not allowed to photograph the environment, which makes for a... even though there's nothing happening, it's just a boring, badly designed uh, space. But it's interesting that you're not actually allowed to. It makes me want to. Uh-huh. It's just, just, I just want to focus on that last point of that quote I read before, that the one small note of reality left to us is inside our own heads. And of course, my experience of this virtual reality environment was entirely mine, entirely inside of my head, impossible to share or even document externally in any way. And I think that kind of paradox or contradiction is such a delicious one. <laughs> yeah, and it's very central, I think, to the way that art functions, you know, whether it's you know, at the moment, what feels like full-blown VR, or whether it's looking at a three-dimensional painting or even a flat painting that, that somehow evokes space and a certain element of, of reality that, that relates to how we deal with the real world. That's all you need. Maybe you were mentioning, I was thinking when you were mentioning it, was that the last room is entirely empty. It's just the exit 
it's just really a symbol for me to tell people you've seen the exhibition you can leave now and if you had any work in there it would feel like you've got more to see so I left it empty but in some ways it doesn't matter it's just as good or bad or it's, it has a similar quality to the other rooms that do have work in there so m for me making this sculpture making this work is not entirely necessary because that room doesn't have any in it and it functions in a similar and possibly more powerful way and that intrigues me it intrigues me that the photographs of the public lavatories that I take there's nothing in there the booths are empty it's all panels it's all a division of space that's the only thing in a public lavatory is a very complicated division of space highly charged um, you know one has strong feelings about it and being in there and physical uh, needs and expression and uh, but it's it's effectively empty so in a way that VR experience is all effectively empty but it, it's necessary for me to to animate it to fill it with with specific emptinesses a group of people walking down the street is another kind of emptiness you're just walking down the street and looking at people you're not there's nothing happening there's no it's not a festival it's not a war it's not a fight it's not uh, and I'm tying this back into your discussion earlier of 24-hour news I don't want anything to be actually happening because that is no longer perhaps the emptiness that I'm I'm wanting to evoke it needs to be uh, a situation where you don't particularly recognize the people they're just like you, they feel normal and right, but you don't particularly recognize them. It doesn't become specific in, in that sense. You know, they're not North Korean soldiers. They're not, they don't have, you know, that would immediately, if I were to draw them in there, that would immediately fill the space with, a, with that specific discussion and, and not allow it to be the same as that last empty room. Because it was that change, that movement from one world to another that made, the created a, a psychological or an emotional both sense for you and a couple of people have come out of that with tears in their eyes and I know that I do not from my own work but from similar experiences because there's a there's a, a lot of emotion wrapped up in that sense of of realizing your placement and your existence or realizing that it's not there mm. and, and the, the challenge and the change of that so the whole exhibition is set up in a way to create those those moments of recognition and um, alienation and engagement that can happen in the world. And in that sense, the actual subject matter, the actual sculpture is not particularly relevant or important. It's an example. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a mirage mm -hmm. set up in order to create a certain situation. I think this is where we can start to understand this experience of alienation or distancing or dissociation as being a productive and a positive one. I mean, you keep bringing up the public lavatory. <laughs> Dude, don't I? And I, I, I know why. <laughs> I, uh, you've been documenting it. I mean, you mentioned in a recent interview, the lavatory is also an empty room. Going to the toilet is a prosaic experience one of the most mundane, banal things we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet, for you, as an environment, the public toilet especially is a fascinating one, and not for reasons that listeners might consider. I mean, hearing you speak about the lavatory elsewhere it has nothing to do with sexuality, with exhibitionism, and instead, it has to do with this particular experience that I think we all have when we go to the toilet, which is, as you say, locking the door in a public restroom, you feel more yourself and you have more of a sense of your own existence somehow. I mean, for me, it's especially after I've used the toilet and I'm washing my hands okay. and I'm looking in the mirror <laughs> before I re-enter public life before I re-enter whatever event preceded and will follow that interlude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a key transition, isn't it? It's, it's a moment of both removal as you remove yourself from you know, any kind of the party or the, the train station or any kind of public environment and you remove yourself from that and you, you, you're allowed to shut that door, which is an unusual thing in life, especially if you have a family, you know, you're allowed to actually shut that door and, and that's it, no one can bother you. Uh, and so that architectural space, which is very limited 
down to, to and related entirely to your body size. I mean, most rooms are, but you're particularly aware of it in that situation. So it's a very charged and telling situation. And I think the fact that we're you know, having a certain amount of humor and trouble talking about it is also interesting because I think that, that unease and, and humor are very uh, useful tools for, for the artist, for me, for, the, for making artworks and sculpture because you're kind of, you're digging a little bit underneath uh, what people feel comfortable with and what's allowable. When I was at art college, I met my first exhibitions were in the, the lavatories of the art school. I would pin up all my works, knowing that I've got a captive, literally captive audience there, but also that the environment is wrong and that that wrongness uh, is quite powerful and, and uh, humorous. And humor is a lot about wrongness. Um, I think on a number of levels, talking about about the public laboratory kind of helps in that sense. But you know, we could we could go down a lot of different examples and mm. and talking about bike bicycle racks is is as good in a way. It has a different kind of um, it's like form this, and function. But this intense um, focus on or presence with the prosaic is somehow incredibly liberating. And again, it brings you closer to your own experience of the world around you. That it's not the event that is eventful for you. It is precisely the non-event or the non-space um, that is somehow most attractive. I think that's also why traveling is often quite important to me. That sense of moving through the world and um, seeing it you know, from unexpected angles, at speed, um, in passing. It's, it's, it's the, when, one, when I see the world in, in those ways that I find it becomes usable and I'm often trying to uh, share that, that kind of view of the world. And I, and I think that there's a, the, you know, that sense of liberation comes to me also in terms of seeing a lot of these things that we've been talking about over a, a period of time, over history. You know, if, if, I, if I see some of the things that we're discussing um, in, in cultures and times that are very distant, that has a similar kind of quality of, of, um, of, of, of non-specificity about the issues of the day. You know, I, if, if we can look at the, the situation in, in Egypt in the, in the tombs or in um, Sulawesi in the village life up in the, in the jungle, we don't have that specificity of, of the history and the political situation of the time. Um, so I, I feel like I can, I, can see, uh, I can see more clearly in that sense, with that distance. When you're talking about the kind of liberation experience through, these, through the non-specificity of the environments or figures that you focus on, there's also a, a, another kind of liberation at play here that has to do with the liberation that one imagines all artists must be pursuing from history itself, from their forebears, from um, influence. I mean, there's this idea of the anxiety of influence that the literary critic Harold Bloom has articulated when it comes to the way that poets operate and the way that they swerve away from their forebears. And similarly, you were doing the same thing as all students must be doing, but very literally so in this series of paintings called Eat Dirt Art History, where you were creating what I think were metal sculptures with sketchily painted reproductions of, of masterworks on them, kind of haphazardly strewn or stacked or sprawled on the ground. So you'd have um, quotations of images from the likes of, paintings from the likes of um, Manet, Manet, Cezanne, Van Gogh, Matisse, Picasso, Mondrian, Pollock, the list goes on. And I think what you were doing there, I mean, what it seems like you were doing is, on the one hand, celebrating those works and a certain lineage or inheritance and on the other hand, casting it all aside to try and start again. And I wonder, do you still feel that sense of pressure or anxiety or that complicated relationship between the art historical canon 
if we could still call it that. And what advice do you have for students today who are undergoing the same process now, but maybe even more so of scrutinizing what came before and what is influencing their work and what they ought to push back against? Yeah, it's a complicated question once again. Um, part, part of it, I think, at that, at that time, you know, obviously that was a very particular and postmodern time where it felt very refreshing to be able to actually bring up these issues in, in an environment where there had been much discussion of stripping away all history and all past and focus, you know, only having material and experience in front of you. And that, that, that seemed like an impossible, uh, line. in a way it was an impossible line to continue or better, but in another way it seemed to simply become yet another influence and history in itself. So an abstract painting became an abstract painting. It didn't become a painting with no subject matter. It became an abstract painting. That was the subject matter. So everything, it had to be admitted that everything had this, this quality of, of, of having a, a history, having a, a style. Um, and so I think that when I was making those works, that was, that was both a kind of cry of helplessness, of but at the same time, a kind of celebration of, let's take it all on board then. And I think that that was the kind of the, the feel of the time. And, and perhaps it continues to be so. And if you can't beat them, join them in terms of history. Like, bring it all on, you know, from, from whatever period, from whatever uh, era. I'm not trying anymore to escape. From, this is what it felt like at the time. That there was, previously, there'd been this attempt to escape from, from all of the influence and uh, history and to come up with something that could exist pure and separate from all of that. And in retrospect, it doesn't look like that at all. It just looks like one section of the museum is called minimalism. Um, and it's, you know, what kind of know what to expect in it. But at the time, that wasn't how, how things, things were read. So I, I, I think I would continue to say, if anyone asked, and I wouldn't expect them to, that, that take, taking it on board and using it to your benefit is, is probably a more productive way of doing things than trying to ignore or blind oneself to certain aspects that you're not comfortable with. Um, I see my role as, as get, getting engaged, having fun, um, drawing from the world, drawing myself, putting, putting that, that process in, in action of, of looking recording, drawing, putting back out again. That's what I know how to do. That's my habitual way of dealing with the world. But what actually gets created that might be of any interest out of that is a little unknowable. It's sort of, the, it's the magic of it. And it's partly magic because I'm not really in control of it. And that's what I'm always looking for is that thing that I'm not in control of. All that other stuff I'm in control of and it, and it can only be me. I can't ever get beyond what I already have done and I already know and I already smell like but but just every now and then you kind of feel like maybe you can in the in the midst of this activity you can hit on something that you wouldn't have been able to but you can't do that without building this edifice of stuff that you do know you're talking about building an edifice to work inside of and of course you've made you've made a home for yourself you have a language you use now in your work. At the same time, I imagine an artist in your position at your stage in your career can start to feel trapped by the house they've built for themselves. You may have ideas about work you want to do, but second guess and look back at what you've done and ask, is this me though? <laughs> can you step outside of that edifice? No. I've given up doing that. I think that that was a midlife crisis kind of period of, of wanting to be someone else. I mean, in a way, every group of work is an attempt to escape from the previous ones. I think of it sometimes as being like, you know, like those ships that, that you know, you go a little bit too far to the left and then you've got all this momentum. So you need to go a lot to the right just to go back straight, but then you end up going too far to the right. And it, I don't make a really, I don't have that much control over the next group of works that I'm making. They can only be a small step from the previous ones. I can't see any further than that 
in terms of materials or processes or imagery, but I can take these little steps and every now and then something will open up. Julian, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair, with additional music this week by Saint Etienne and Julian Opie. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Julian Opie. Thanks as always to Scandalin. Special thanks this week to Laura Callender and Victoria Mitchell. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.